jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come now and consider um, what your word has to say about this, this whole idea of doubt and assurance. Uh, we, we confess that uh, the opportunities for doubt are, are plenty. Um, we present ourselves with obstacles all the time through our own sin. Uh, we become frustrated uh, when we forget the hope that is before us. And so strengthen the assurance that we have in Christ today, I pray, and I pray that you would show us wonderful things from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So if someone came to you and, and did have, was having a struggle with their assurance or, or some aspect of it, doubting God's forgiveness, doubting God's love, uh, what are some of the passages that would come to mind? We might think of the Psalms. Uh, in terms of uh, comforting passages that speak of who God is and his truth. Uh, Psalm 23, especially the phrase, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And uh, that certainly would be a, a great place to go and to meditate. I think that's why it's probably the most favorite psalm that there is, or at least the most well-known. Uh, we might think of a passage uh, from one of the Gospels, Jesus' own words, John six forty seven. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Just something so simple at times can comfort our hearts that, uh, you know, if we believe with our mouth, or believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, uh, you know, that, that faith is really that simple. Sometimes that reminder is helpful. Or uh, in one of the epistles, 2 Timothy 1, 12, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So there, you know, Paul's dealing with both the idea, the simplicity of faith, its belief in what Christ has done, but the fact that it really is his grasp, his grip. He's going to guard what has been entrusted to us until that day. And there's, there's great comfort and assurance in that. There isn't really a right answer, so to speak, or one answer. There's not a magic verse or passage that you take people to, and all doubt just flies away. Uh, In fact, where we're going today, which I mentioned last week, Romans 8, there might be times where it doesn't go to the heart the way another passage will. And so I'm not presenting this as like the only place to go or the first place to go, but it is a great place to go because it is chock full of not just words of assurance, but really explanation of how we can be assured. Romans as a whole book really is full. In fact, a lot of people learn the tool of the Romans road as a tool of evangelism because the the clarity of the gospel, our sinfulness and need for salvation and what Christ has done for us and then the hope that awaits for us, it's all just so clearly laid out in the book of Romans. Uh, Chapter 5, for example, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so their whole idea of not just uh, you know, assurance in the midst of this, but uh, the assurance because of what Christ has done. But as I mentioned, Romans 8 is, is, is where we're going and what I want to look at. There's so much there, it's, it's, it's really hard to do justice to it in one Sunday school class. So we're just going to kind of fly, fly through it. Uh, but it's necessary to go back to Romans 7 before we go to Romans 8, just for context. Context is always important. Uh, anytime you're reading something, you know, you don't just open a book and jump in. You, you, you want to find out what the author was saying. That is particularly true when you see connectional words like therefore. 
And Romans 8 starts with that. You know, there is therefore now no condemnation. And so a, a cheesy tool that I learned as a kid, <laughs> but it, it works. What's the therefore, therefore, you know? Uh, it, it's, you know, when you see the word therefore, go back. What, it, what, is, what was the author just saying previously there so that you understand the train of thought? And so what Paul was dealing with in, in chapter 7 of Romans is just, you know, in, in a nutshell, it's that struggle that we all recognize. You know, why do I do what I don't want to do? Why don't I do what I want to do or wish I would do? And it's a struggle that all of us can relate to. He deals with the aspect of law, that the law is not the problem. He says in verse 7, What shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then he, he answers the question that we're, we're likely going to have when we see that the, you know, there's this struggle with the law. Um, and he says the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law is not the problem, it's our hearts that are, that, that's the problem. You know, we live in a society, and it's good to remind ourselves of this, that says the exact opposite. You know, trust your heart, believe in yourself, um, follow, fo- follow your, your dreams or your feelings or, or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> believe in yourself. Uh, but, uh, you know, Scripture tells us the opposite. It tells us that the heart is deceitful. It's wicked. It's sick. And it tells us that God's law is good. What does the law do for us? It reveals to us who God is. It tells us uh, uh, how you know, the measure, in a sense, of, of what, we have, what we're held to, his holy standard. And, and by doing that, it shows us we can't match up, that we need a Savior. Uh, but it, it does tell us how to live. It tells us not just in the sense of how to live a life pleasing to God. It's certainly true. But it's also, from the other side, how to live a life that's fulfilled and blessed. You know, when, when we follow or submit to, uh, to, to God's law, there's, there's peace and there's happiness. And so the law is good. The law is not the problem. It's our hearts. He goes on in verse 14 and 15, For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. I do the very thing I hate. And this is Paul. <laughs> so pretty comforting that the apostle would write these words. It would be... Um, you know, God sees fit that these words are in Scripture because we might think that Paul was the super saint and there was no struggle and he had reached a level. I certainly thought that way for a long time uh, as a young Christian, that there was some kind of plateau that you got to and then you just coasted because, you know, older people made it look so easy. And, uh, and that's just not the case. So we can acknowledge that God's law is good um, because he is good but we have to recognize we do not desire the law. We do not desire to conform to the law. We are in opposition to it. He says this in verses 22 to 25, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the struggle is there. The struggle is something that we can relate to, and yet here's the solution. The solution is what Christ has done. This is why he gives thanks to him, that he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. He, uh, he obeyed perfectly in our place, but he also died to atone for what the law brought on us is that a curse. We didn't conform to the law, so there was judgment that was due to us, and he takes that away as well.
Yeah. I think from a human standpoint, I mean, we might, we might, you know, in our brain, you know, think of a scenario where someone uh, had convinced themselves otherwise. But if the struggle is real, and I think for someone who is talking to you about struggling um, and the struggle is ongoing, it's not just a moment in time kind of thing, I think that would be, yeah, that would be the case, that, that, that the struggle wouldn't be there if they weren't a child of God. And so even in that, even in, those, in the frailty of our faith is affirmation that we want to believe. I believe, help my unbelief kind of thing. So thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's dealt with the problem. There is therefore now no condemnation. He then comes in in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So no condemnation. You could almost just read those words. And there, there, there's, there's the answer to all of our doubts, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson writes, His justification was once for all. Being raised from the dead, he will never die again. God's verdict on Jesus will be neither reversed nor repeated. Precisely because we are justified in him, that is, in his justification... Our justification is also final and irreversible. We are fully, finally, and irreversibly justified. The only justification we have, our only righteousness, is that of the Lord Jesus. And this evokes the confidence of Romans 8.1 that no condemnation is possible for us. Not only are we pardoned, but Christ's whole righteousness wrought out in his obedience to death and his last day of vindication and his resurrection has been counted to us. Thus, we are constituted righteous. We are justified by the redemption that is in him. That is our sure hope, that Christ has secured for us this perfect, irreversible, uh, unchangeable justification uh, on our behalf so that we all we have to do is rest, rest upon him in faith. Therefore, no condemnation can be leveled against us. So, the truth is no condemnation can be leveled against us. Are there condemnations leveled against us? Well, yes and no. There are accusations, maybe would be a better word, leveled against us, but they're not condemnations. There's no condemnation that would stand in a court of law. Uh, we get accused all the time. The evil one's the accuser. Our own hearts accuse us. Our own hearts will stir up memories of past sins or doubts or struggles or whatever, where we even uh, facilitate that accusation process. But the message that we have to speak to our hearts is that there is therefore now no condemnation. It will not stand. Why? Because of anything we've done, because we're special, because we figured it out, because we're just a little bit better than somebody else? No. It is solely because of what Christ has done. He is the legal justification. He's what stand in the court, it stands in the court of law, and there is no condemnation that can stand against us. But that message isn't left alone. It would be, in some ways, enough for us to know that. But there's much more 
as Paul Harvey would say. Uh, Paul goes on to speak that the Spirit is the pledge that is indwelling us. He is our helper. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So this whole idea of the, the, the Spirit is, first of all, he, he, he comes at the moment of faith to indwell us. So we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. And, and, and the first thing to note about that is that it, he comes as a guarantee or a pledge. Uh, that's what's described in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If a young person today wants to go get a credit card, uh, the options that are before them, uh, I'm learning as a parent of young adults, is, are these secure, the secured accounts. Basically, they put the money up. If it's $1,000, the $1,000 goes into an account. So the bank already has your money if you don't pay the credit card. Um, and then you borrow against that. But they report it to the credit agency. It functions like a normal credit card. You build your credit. That money is a pledge or a guarantee. It's the security that guarantees the bank will get their payment no matter what you do, even if you're lousy. That's the Spirit's role. He is the guarantee. He is the seal. He is the pledge on our behalf so that when we doubt, when our faith is frail, when we sin, He is the guarantee of what, you know, in other words, you you can't mess this up. That's kind of the point of those credit cards. Uh, banks learned that no matter you know uh, what kids, young people had done, uh, kids—they're all kids now, right? Uh, what what young people had done, or who, what family they came from, what, however they could form a credit score, none of it mattered. There were there weren't enough predictors, so they came up with this plan that said, it "Doesn't matter what you do, because we're gonna we're gonna have your money already. It's the pledge, it's the seal." And in that sense, the spirit is there to guarantee what Christ has accomplished has already been applied to us. At the moment of faith, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and His indwelling presence then serves as our guarantee so that we have trust, we have confidence, in, not, in, not in our works, not in our performance, not in, our, in, in the fact that we got it right ten times in a row or we got it wrong ten times in a row. Uh, if we have confessed with our mouth and believed in our heart, the Spirit is ours. But the Spirit's role isn't simply as a seal. The Spirit also helps us. How can we be assured of this? In verses 15 to 7, Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we talked about this a little bit last week. The fact that we can cry out, Abba, Father, is an indication. Even that desire to cry out to God is an indication uh, that the Spirit is within us, that there is evidence of that, that we want to call on God as Father. Um, I'm not a Greek scholar or anything like that. I've heard people uh, equate Abba to the English euphemism, Daddy, and I've heard other people say, no, 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 that's not what it means. And, and, you know, people have different opinions on that. For me, all of those arguments went out the window the first time I went to Israel. And we were in the home of an Israeli Hebrew-speaking uh, pastor and his family, Yossi Avadia. And his, uh, he had young children at the time. 
we're talking, very serious meeting, and all of a sudden from one of the back bedrooms comes the child with the flailing arms, you know, clearly in distress down the hall. Abba, Abba, Abba. And, you know, Yossi, like any father, scoops him up and comforts the child. And I will never forget that. That's the image that I have in my mind. That is really the image of us when we call out in distress. Like the child with the flailing arms who knows where to run, knows where to find that security, we call out, Abba, Father. It's by the Spirit's power that we do this. Again, Sinclair Ferguson, the word that issues from our hearts when we are in need and cry out to him, Abba, is itself an expression of deep down assurance that we are his. In fact, Paul employs a verb that is elsewhere expressive of a cry of need or pain. Assurance, then, is not reserved only for Christians who have attained to the highest and holiest of conditions. It is for all of God's children, even, indeed, especially at their weakest and their neediest. And what a comfort that is for us. So, first, that there is no condemnation. Second, that we have the Spirit as pledge, as security, the, the think again of the credit card, you know, you can't mess this up. He is the pledge. It's not our behavior. It's not our performance. It's not our good works. It's not our correct theology and all the things that we want to put our assurance in. We don't put our assurance in these things. We put our assurance in Christ alone. The Spirit is the pledge of what Christ has done. So our faith continually gets pushed back to look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. And then the Spirit's role is not just of that pledge, but he is also that helper to us. And that's where Paul goes next, is dealing with suffering. You know, in in all of our doubts, if you've lived um, very long at all, you will know that there are intellectual doubts that come to to our salvation. Uh, Probably all of us can describe having experienced things like, you know, did this really happen, and was this true, and somebody said this, and then you you kind of wrestle with things intellectually. And then there's the kind of doubt that comes through suffering. And I would argue, and this is anecdotally, I don't have a verse to take you to, but I would argue from my own experience that the doubts that come from suffering are the deepest doubts that I've ever struggled with. And not particularly my own suffering, but the suffering of people I love. Why did this happen? Why did God allow this to happen? And that's where Paul takes us next is the whole notion of suffering. He says we all suffer. He first deals with creation. He establishes the fact that there's this kind of universal nature to the fact of suffering because of sin. Sin has entered the world. All of creation is under this curse. It groans and so forth. But we also groan as creation groans. Um, In verses 23 and following, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirits groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. The hope that is not the hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this to a sufferer is something that um, when, when you're in suffering, when you're in the midst of suffering, we all suffer in various ways. But the whole idea of patience, waiting, uh, that that that's really where where your, your your struggle lies is when will it end? When will this lift? When will whatever I'm experiencing or the loved one that I care about is experiencing, when will it be made right? When will it be fixed? 
uh, were guaranteed suffering. I mean, Paul had said that in verse 17 uh, in, this, in the same chapter, the whole notion of suffering with Christ. Uh, we suffer because of Christ, uh, the rejection and so forth. If the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Uh, so we're not promised a, a life free from suffering, but there is something about suffering that takes us to, uh, can, can take us to a real crisis of faith. So where does Paul go with that? Well, he talks about kind of the core of faith. He talks about hope, but in the same relation as faith is described in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What he's saying is that you, you, you can't look at this with your eyes. Uh, what you see with your eyes is going to deceive you. Your circumstances, uh, that, that's, that's not going to give you the correct picture. You've got to look at this with eyes of faith. Um, so often we, we simply want our circumstances fixed. We want them changed. And it's so much harder to wait than it is just to say, God, fix this. Fix this. Now, we still pray that. We long for that. We wish for that. But as all of us can probably attest to, often we're called to wait. 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 And it feels like the suffering continues. And we ask ourselves questions like, how could a good God allow this? And why would a good God not deliver now? If he could fix the problem right now, why doesn't he? And we wait and wait. And he says, look with eyes of faith, because hope that is seen is not hope. If God were a genie in the bottle, our faith wouldn't grow. Our faith would be weak because we would just pray. He would fix our problem. And then we would go back to doing whatever we would do. I mean, he knows our hearts. He knows uh, our, our wickedness. We, we understand this when it comes to parenting or if you've ever, even if you're not a parent, if you've taught uh, a class or worked with children in any sense, you know that there's something about hope deferred. I joked with Dick before Sunday school began. I said, you know, there's donuts in there. Be sure all your kids go in and get a donut before class. Well, of course, no teacher's going to do that from just a physiological standpoint, getting the kids all jacked up on sugar right before class. Of course, all the parents are glaring at me right now, um, and uh, I'm not apologetic because, you know, it's the end of Sunday school. You know, let them have done it. Um, but, but in the sense of, of, of if you want the kids to, to, to do well in Sunday school, you talk about the donut after class, all right? There's, there's kind of hope deferred. And so there's just something about our nature to that that, uh, you know, hope is something that is not seen, it's not immediate, it's something that we wait for. So what is the solution? Well, the solution is very similar to what we saw in Romans 7 when Paul is talking about wrestling with the struggle and temptation of sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this, the struggle here for hope is the same or the answer to the struggle is the same. It is to be centered on the person and work of Christ, that he fulfilled the law through his perfect obedience, and that his death atoned for the curse of law upon us, that we might be forgiven all of our sins, that there is therefore now no condemnation. So this is the answer to us in the midst of our suffering. There is no Because what suffering is constantly yelling at us, screaming at us, is accusation, accusation. What did you do wrong? What did you contribute? This is your, you know, somehow this is your fault. You're to blame. I mean, our minds do this constantly. And so the answer to, to the question of suffering is the same, to, 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 in, in a sense, to the same answer to the question of temptation. And that is, there's now, that now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is in this hope you have been saved. Again, he adds more. But wait, there's more, right? As the commercials always say. The Spirit not only 
Um, it, it's our pledge. He is, he is not only our, our security in that sense, but he also is our helper. We cry, Abba, Father, because of the Spirit, but he also intercedes and helps us in our weakness. Look down in verses um, 26 to 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. So right there in the middle, what verse is it that sticks out from that passage? What was the familiar verse that I just read? Okay, everybody go get a donut, get some sugar, and um, come on. Um, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. How many times have you said it or heard it when you've been in the midst of some kind of struggle? All right, it's, it's just kind of a go-to. But look at the context of it. I mean, the context isn't how we use it at all. We kind of use it as this placebo, like there, 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 as we pat somebody on the head. Um, and that's, that's, that, that isn't the, the context. The context is incredible struggle, uh, suffering, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And the Spirit, is a, because He is the third person of the Trinity and knows the will of God, He is accomplishing the will of God on our behalf for us to bring together all things together for good, to, to, to work all of these things in such a way. And then He goes on that, We've been predestined, we've been called, we've been justified, and we've been glorified. He speaks of it in, 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 in a completed sense, because that's how sure it is. So it's not this patting on the head of comfort, but it's this deep-rooted assurance that what God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus is as good as done. That's, that's, the, that's the way he uses the language for, uh, for us here to understand. The Spirit is our helper who strengthens us in our faith, even intercedes on our behalf when we don't have the words to speak. The Spirit of God labors, knowing the will of God. He is at work accomplishing that will, which is for our good and for His glory. So a challenge for us in in this regard is um, how we use Scripture to comfort others. And so since this is one that we often use to comfort others, and some of you... I'm sure have heard me lament the fact that this is used at times uh, inappropriately, but I don't want to to, to create uh, undue caution in the sense of oh I'm afraid to say Romans eight twenty eight because it might might be harmful. I think we just need to to consider how and when we use it and and our own heart motives and how we use it that we're not just flippantly responding to some. For example. If someone had a child die and you came to the funeral and you were walking through the line, you wouldn't quote Romans 8.28 to them. That, that just isn't the time to say, you're suffering your child's death, which no parent no parent's supposed to bury a child, uh, let alone a young child, that they're trying to make sense of that God's going to work this together for good. That, the truth doesn't change. Um, I told the story before, I'll mention it again in the context, and that is my sister lost a, a child. She only lived for seven hours. Uh, we went and, and, and we did have a funeral um, 
And I remember after the funeral, I was a young minister at the time, and, and she said to me, um, I never stopped believing, but, but I didn't want to hear all the quotes and the cliches. I just didn't want to hear it. She said, what I wanted to hear was, I'm sorry, and I love you. And then she looked at me, and she said, remember that. And I have. It's always stuck with me. That in moments of grief and sorrow as people are struggling, whether it's the struggle with their own sin or, or, or whatever, the, 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 the guiding kind of principle for me has been one of grieve with those who grieve, I'm sorry, and then I love you. Just share the love of Christ with them. Uh, then is there an appropriate time to, to mention this verse or any other verses? Sure, there will be those appropriate times. I'm not saying that this verse or any other verse is off limits, but let's be careful how we apply these words of comfort to be, to be sure that the timing and the, 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 even the tone of how we do it is, is truly comforting. In a sense, we put ourselves in the position of those who are suffering. Does, does that make sense? You know, if you, if you follow the pattern of Christ's life in terms of the good life, you know, and where it ended, crucifixion on the cross, if you look at the apostles, so many of the early church fathers who were, were despised and rejected, um, killed, lost their lives, most of them were, were killed for the faith. Um, we, we have turned in, in our American Western evangelicalism uh, it, it's, it's kind of that moniker of, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and people, I mean, we've probably all heard it, if not said it. I know I've said it. Um, and, and what people end up hearing is God's going to make all my problems go away. That if you just come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. And it's really kind of the opposite. <laughs> come to Jesus and discover problems you can't even imagine. Uh, to live as a pagan in a pagan world is easier than to live as a Christian in a pagan world. And so uh, now the end is obviously different, and this is where the whole notion of good gets to. And this is why he says, don't look at this with your eyes. You've got to look at eyes of faith. Hope that is seen is not really hope. You've got to see what is unseen and recognize that if Christ was raised from the dead, you too will be raised from the dead. So good is really good and it is coming. It's just not now. Not the kind of goodness that we're going to experience. That doesn't mean we won't experience good things in this life. That doesn't mean that I mean, we do. We do all the time. I'm constantly convicted of how... Um, especially when I hear of what's you know other other Christians in the world are experiencing, or if I ever read anything historical, and I think of what Christians or all people you know experience beforehand. You know when I'm uh, you know getting up in the morning and taking a hot shower and drinking hot coffee and you know opening the fridge and you know any, you know in a sense anything I want to eat or whatever. Um, there are so many things, good things, that we enjoy in this life that we can be thankful for. It's not to say that we don't experience anything good, but what is truly good, what is lasting and good, the final good, the, 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 the ultimate good that is ours, is awaiting us. It's not here in the sense of it's here in a real, in a real sense spiritually, but we, we don't have eyes to see it yet. We don't possess it yet. But then he says to us, 
glorified, past tense. It's as good as done for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so in this we can put, um, put our hope. The last part is uh, uh, obviously at the end of Romans 8. It really just serves as a conclusion. I won't say a whole lot about it. Let me just read it to you. What then shall we say to these things? So he kind of sums everything up beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, it doesn't need much explanation, does it? I mean, it's very straightforward and what is ours. In fact, the, the, the end part, you know, where he's, you know, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, you know, it's like one of those authors who doesn't know that, you know, three or four is enough and stop listing and they're still listing. But a lot of guys that, that, are, that are dead write this way, and, and it really is helpful because it just, it, it, it's, it's hyperbolic. It just drives the point home that what did I mean by nothing? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because every doubt that comes at us is, is it's, it's this thing. This is what's going to separate it. I mean, I've done this. This, is, this has done it. This has separated me from God's love, or this happened, or this hasn't happened. Therefore, I'm separated from God's love. And he is saying, for those who are trusting Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the comfort, this is the hope to which we've been saved, that what Christ has accomplished for us is certainly ours. We have the Spirit as a pledge, as a guarantee for us. He is... uh, Uh, laboring on our our behalf, strengthening us, praying for us. Christ is interceding for us. Uh, The Spirit also, you know, enables us, gives us power to cry out, Abba, Father, so that, you know, again, remember the kid, you know, we've all seen it. You know, we've probably picked up a niece or a nephew, our own child that's that's done this. If we walked out of the narthex now and, and, and Lily was running out and Brandon and Jennifer weren't around, any of us would, you know, respond because we recognize the distress that's, that's, that's what we do when, we, when, we're, when we're doubting and when we're afflicted is we call out Abba, we call out Daddy, and we know to where to run because of the Spirit's presence within us. I was convinced there was no way I could cover all of that in one Sunday school, so I had markers like, I'll just stop here. <clears throat> we, we, we finished really early. I guess I was just blah, 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 going too fast. Any questions, thoughts, comments on doubt and assurance? I don't know if any of this has been helpful, but I hope it has. Ian?
Thank you, brother. Good word. And all seem to circle right around again to that familiar passage. A lot of us have committed to memory John three sixteen. For God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal lasting life. Mm. That's our hope. That's our sure hope. It does sound too good to be true. I think that's that's part of our, our struggle is the, just faith, hope, belief. What? You know, trusting Christ alone. Don't I have to do something? Don't I, don't I have to contribute something? We're all little legalists in, in our, in, inside, you know, and, and so we're always, we want to justify ourselves. And so one of the reasons why it's so helpful to come back to the gospel and, and, and to hear it again and again, why we need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves every day, preach it because we are, we, we function as as uh, uh, as legalists, you know, we 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 want to either earn it or place that demand upon ourselves that we haven't earned it, and somehow we are condemned. And so, coming back to the proclamation of the gospel every day as we get up and we go through our day, that in Christ, it's all been paid. He accomplished it all. He didn't give us the possibility of salvation. He accomplished our salvation. It is finished. He completed it, and we can rest in that, not having to perform to earn it but being able to live free, to live unto God, a life of gratefulness and thankfulness, a life of blessedness conforming to his law uh, because we've been freed from the weight of sin, the condemnation of sin, all of that. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. He was a terrorist. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, people have equated, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein or uh, um, um, what's the, huh? Bin Laden. I wanted to say another name, which would have gotten me in a lot of trouble. I don't know why that one came. Um, <clears throat> one of our own presidents. I, I, it, was, it was something about the B. Uh, but Bin Laden, Bin Laden, the terrorist that he was. Um, that that you know kind of equated those uh, those things. If, if God was able to save Saul of Tarsus, who went on a tirade to to kill Christians, and it was I mean it was his job uh, that he was he was funded just like terrorists are to do that. This is who God redeemed. So when you're um, when you're at the Dunkin' Donuts like I was last night, and you're dealing with a clerk who doesn't know what gender they are, and it's a physical, just like, you know, dude, (laughs) 
you, you, you just, you want to almost, like, I, I want to have sympathy. I want to have pity. I want to have, remember from what you've been saved. Have, have, have mercy on the person that's in front of you that it doesn't make sense what they've bought into uh, or what they're doing, whether they're the one that, that looks like a terrorist or looks like someone who's uh, you know, confused or, 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 or just embraced sin or whatever. Don't allow those experiences to harden your heart to where you look with judgment, but allow Romans 8 to remind you from what you have been saved so that you might be merciful and might even show kindness to those whom you might, from a fleshly or inward standpoint, want to be repulsed by. And, uh, and, and maybe, just maybe, have an opportunity to, uh, to give a glimpse um, of the hope that's in you. Let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time that we've had together. I pray your blessing on, on it as, as we trust your spirit is in each one of us. So working through your word now, take these things that we've looked at today and even over the past five weeks and build upon, uh, build us up in the faith, grow us up in the faith, assure us of what Christ has accomplished for us so that when the doubts come, and they certainly will, uh, that we have the the response of running to Christ, who is our all-sufficient Savior, rather than to our own justification or our own attempts to justify ourselves. Would you give us great assurance in Jesus for who he is and all that he's done in his name? Amen.